This week's TribCast is sponsored by the nonpartisan LBJ Women's Campaign School trains women to run for office and manage campaigns. Are you ready to enter the political arena? Join our inaugural training June 9th through the 13th. Applications are due April 6th. More at lbjwcs.lbj.utexas.edu. And Waters and Kraus. There's a reason lawyers refer tough cases to us. We fight industry giants on behalf of individuals daily. We're Waters and Kraus. More at waterkraus.com. Hello and welcome to the March 11th edition of the Texas Tribune Tribcast. This is Alexa Uda. I'm joined this week by Health and Human Services reporter Edgar Walters. Hello. Managing editor Matthew Watkins. Hello. And Tribune CEO Evan Smith. Hi, you, you ordered this in, the, in, in importance. Yeah, Edgar exactly. First. Right. Perfect. That's exactly what happened here. Uh, and we will be joined a little bit later by politics reporter Cassie Pollock. As always, we'll be taking your questions via Facebook and Twitter, so send them our way using the hashtag TribCast. All right, we're going to start with coronavirus in Texas in case Edgar has to run in the middle of TripCast. He actually will be leaving in like 10 minutes. Um, We're at more than 30 cases in Texas at the moment. We've got the first possible case of community spread. Edgar, can you sort of give us the 10,000-foot view at the moment about the situation in Texas? Sure. Um, So I just got off the phone with... um you know, a public health expert who described us as being sort of at an inflection point. Um, we don't 100% know if um, coronavirus is currently um, in the community, if there are sort of undiagnosed cases and, and risk of infection to, to the lay public. Um, but we think that there is a chance of that. We just got news out of Montgomery County that um, a man in his 40s who yesterday we reported had tested positive for the disease, um, you know, when somebody tests positive, they send public health workers out to do sort of a, a case investigation. And what they have since learned is that man had not traveled outside of Texas, which means he got it here, presumably. Um, and basically what that means for the response is um, if we are going to see more cases like this, which we are, um, as soon as we reach the point of you know community spread, depending on how widespread that is, we're, we're, we're sort of transitioning from a phase of trying to contain the virus by, you know, purely by travel restrictions like we've seen on the federal level um, to, to more of a mitigation and containment strategy. It's, you know, the part of the public health response where we start looking at canceling big public events like South by Southwest or rumor has it maybe the the, the Houston rodeo is, is maybe being uh, imminently. Yeah, so that's the is having a press conference right now. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it means um, asking people to self-quarantine. It means ramping up uh, hospital capacity to respond to this. Um, The threat to the public generally in Texas remains low, uh, and that's important to stress, but we're we're at a point in the the response where um, it looks like community spread, if it's not here yet, it's going to be here imminently, and we need to be thinking about what we as a society... uh, 
do to respond to that, whether that's more working from home, whether that's universities and, and school districts canceling classes and reckoning with the trade-offs that come with that, how to get you know, kids free and reduced meals if they can't get them at school, um, you know. And essentially, the big picture here is, you know, for public health officials, the question is, in the event that a lot of people in Texas get sick, which they probably will, can we take steps to prevent all of those people from getting sick at the same time? Mm. Because there is a finite amount of healthcare capacity in this state and in this country. There are a finite number of hospital beds and ICU beds. And for people who in the minority of cases, let's be clear, but the, in those cases where uh, people get sick with COVID-19 and do have serious um, you know, respiratory uh, problems associated with that, they need ventilators. There's, a, you know, a limited number of those. So what steps can we as a society and as a state take to make sure that not everybody's going to the hospital at once um, because we don't have enough hospital beds, we don't have enough nurses and doctors, and we don't have enough ventilators for that. Um, so it's really all about kind of flattening the curve, as they yeah. say. I mean, I, I do wonder, you know, five and a half years ago, amid the response to Ebola, you and I wrote a story in which public health experts at the time sort of raised concerns about the state's public health response system, basically, and how fragmented it was. Are we in any better shape today than we were then? Um, I would say yes and no. So, so there are always going to be challenges in Texas dealing with a public health uh, crisis. Uh, we wrote about one of them this week. A, a major problem in, a, in, you know, in a case like this, different from Ebola in the sense that this is a disease where the fatality rate appears low, but the transmission rate and the you know possibility of a widespread epidemic is high. Um, we have a lot of people who don't have health insurance uh, in this state and the way the public health system interacts with the sort of like paying for healthcare system that we have in this state is if you think you are sick, if you are exhibiting flu-like symptoms, um, the way that you are supposed to deal with that is sort of uh, an individual uh, concern, right? It is a matter of can you call your doctor? Mm -hmm. uh, can you get a health appointment and get tested? Um, and, you know, have, have that test sent, you know, take your nose and throat swabs and have those sent to the, you know, local public health lab where they can test for coronavirus. Um, we have 5 million people who don't have health insurance. Um, a lot of those people do not have primary care doctors. That is not necessarily a simple thing for, for that population to get tested. Right. Well, and the extent to which those individuals have probably in the past not gotten the medical health care that they need because they have been uninsured, right? You have people who may have untreated underlying that, health That issues. gets to the question of how exactly not having insurance and not being someone who regularly goes to the doctor exacerbates a situation like this. Like not being able to get care is one thing, but to Alexa's point, if you wind it back, do the conditions make someone more medically vulnerable as a result of not having insurance? Um, yes, although I want to be clear that like people, like having underlying medical conditions doesn't, like those problems don't care if you have insurance or not, right? There are going to be people sure. with diabetes um, or chronic lung problems who are going to be, or, or you know, suppressed immune systems who are going to be more at risk 
um, for this disease, and some of them have health insurance and some of them don't. Um, but certainly, I mean, there's volumes of research to show that people who don't have health insurance don't tend to get primary care. They don't tend to get preventative care. And the bulk of the care that they do receive, or, or they're certainly much more likely to receive care in an emergency room type setting. So, you know, they haven't gotten care for a condition and it has sort of slowly become more of a problem until one day you have an acute problem. You're having, you know, a heart attack, you're having some sort of diabetic attack, like they're going to the emergency room to get care. And, you know, we were talking about flattening the curve before that, that is the concern. There is a finite number of emergency room personnel of ICU beds available to treat people in crisis. And so uh, it's all a matter of yep. taking measures to make sure that they're not overwhelmed at it's once. It's moments like this when I think about how Texas now has fewer rural hospitals than it did 10 years ago, right? We have the most closures of rural hospitals mm -hmm. of any state over the last 10 years. Not having access to a provider mm -hmm. is itself as problematic as not having access to coverage. Right, right, right. Well, and at this point, you can only get tested if a doctor agrees to it, right? Like, there, you can't get to the point, even if you were exposed or fear you were exposed and have symptoms. It's not just as simple as calling up, you know, please let me get tested, because right. you actually do, at this point, because of the limited testing, need a doctor to approve. Right. The capacity for doing testing right now remains extremely limited. That's part of the problem, right? That there aren't very many tests available? It is. It, it is. Um, you know, public health, John Hellerstedt was at uh, the House Public Health Committee hearing in Austin uh, yesterday, and he, you know, described it as not necessarily being, um, you know, t testing gives you the ability to, like, provide surveillance, right? It, it is, it gives you a sense of what is the scope of what we're talking about. And so not having the ability to do widespread testing is um, certainly limiting the amount of information that's available to public health officials. I mean, that said, getting tested for the virus is not like critical to healing a person who has it. And in fact, we there is not, you know, we do not have antiviral medications or something that can treat the disease right now. It, it, the limitations with testing are more about, we don't really know how widespread it is. We don't know the extent to which there has been community transmission. And that's a problem because that data can inform public officials who are trying to make decisions about, do we need to close the schools? So the, it's the behavioral part. Do we need to right. put a city on lockdown? You know, Certainly we're not at that point yet, but you need data to make those decisions. Um, and right now we've got 10 public health labs in Texas right. that can perform these tests. We're starting to have private labs come online. Doctors, it seems, can order sample, you know, order tests online, but they've got to, you know, take these biological samples, ship them at, you know, cold, you know, cold temperatures. There, there's a, it's hard to get tested right now. Yeah. Well, Edgar, I promised we would get you in and out in 10 minutes, so I'm going to let you go back to your breaking news, but Absolutely. we appreciate you jumping on. We're going to bring Cassie onto the stage. Um, while we make that transition, I do, I wanted to ask one last thing about this, and I'm, I'm, you know, I hesitate to make this about politics. Come on, Cassie. But oh, I, make it about <laughs> politics. <laughs> well, I mean, I do think it has been interesting to see the extent to which issues that are sometimes more easily cast through a political lens like paid sick leave policies um, or are at least more regularly digested in 
political terms as you know the states move to not expand Medicaid and cover a whole lot of uninsured folks. Um, but they kind of really are at the forefront of this in, in some ways, right? Beyond the sort of general how many people have been exposed and, and all of that. But I mean, what do we make of the f- fact that these issues sort of, I mean, this public health emergency has brought these things to the forefront. Do we think it makes any difference when lawmakers come back? You know, I think we're so focused right now on all the things that Edgar have start, has been talking about that I'm not sure there's really been a very robust discussion of, of you know, what can we do lex- next legislative session or, or what can be done in the, in the uh, you know, long-term or mid-term future to do this, right? Right now we're focusing on you know, everything from, you know, do we have community spread to, you know, our gas price, oil prices below $40 a barrel, the, you know, massive kind of economic impact that this is, seems clearly like it's going to have on this state and the country as at large. I think, um, so to answer your question, I don't know, you know, um, Alex wrote a story yesterday about um, the particular issue of paid sick leave where Austin, Dallas and San Antonio all passed um, measures in recent years uh, uh, requiring businesses within the cities to to have paid sick leave for their employees um, that um, in San Antonio and Austin, the courts um, blocked that. Uh, lawmakers in the capital were determined to make those kind of city rules illegal. Um, those efforts failed in the last legislative session, though not really because there wasn't that support. It kind of was a victim of uh, kind of a side issue that kind of got brought in. They missed a layup. Yeah. So, I mean, we'll see whether that changes you know the the Texas Public Policy Foundation which has which brought those lawsuits that helped brought, bring it you know the um, one of their uh, representatives yesterday told Alex you know that this isn't uh, that that paid sick leave is good but um, but required paid sick leave is not good and kind of kind of seemed to be bothered by the fact that this was being brought up at this moment mm. so I'm not sure we're seeing a at least at this point a kind of change in position by the people who are opposed to these I think it's going to depend uh, Alexa upon the election so the 2018 election was an inflection point politically that caused everybody to rush over to the side of uh, state-funded pre-k Right, five minutes before pre-K, as we've said many times, was godless socialism, kids being ripped from the arms of their loving parents, right? And then all of a sudden, because the election happened and the way that it happened, there was this flip in the sentiment inside the building, and all of a sudden, everybody loved uh, pre-K, full-day pre-K. I think we'll see what the elections produce in the way of a partisan split in the legislature. But it's a moment like this, a public health crisis like this, where the guidance from official quarters is if you're sick stay home to which people in many places say yes but i can't afford to take that time off that becomes the catalyst for a reconsideration of whether this is sound public policy not because we're giving something away to freeloaders Mm -hmm. but because from a public health standpoint the way to contain what edgar was talking about is to give people the economic means not just those who can afford it but those who can't to stay so. And, and we've seen how crises can change the political conversation in Texas. I mean, you look at like what happened when we had a rash of mass shootings in the state and Governor Abbott convened people and, and there were conversations about, you know, gun measures that maybe hadn't been brought up. But that kind of 
then Can, quickly. I, I, I'm, tem- I'm tempted to put the word change in big air quotes. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. It, uh, it, that in that situation, it kind of disappeared fairly quickly after. Yeah, I mean, I think the extent to which conversations that come up after a massive event or inflection point a turn flood, into flood mitigation after Harvey. Sure. Yeah, I mean, right? I, I think they're they're sort of a varied uh, history in terms of what actually plays out in the legislature after these events. I, I don't want to say that a crisis, you know, it's the old Rahm Emanuel line, never let a good crisis go to waste. I think that probably the advocates for paid sick leave are certainly going to take the position here that this crisis is a catalyst, right? And that's why it's come back up. Um, I think we should all be rooting for this not to be a disaster, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, mean, I, think, I think, but first things first, let's have it not be this massive public health disaster where the overwhelming response to it is, yeah, we probably should have had paid sick leave all along because people who didn't stay home infected everybody who they work with, right? We'd like that not to be the case. Well, let's uh, move on to a sort of different crisis and or disaster that we saw on Super Tuesday. Uh, The primary election in Texas was kind of a hot mess. Um, we had insufficient voting machines across the state, not enough people checking in voters. So this not all part the- of the podcast where you interview yourself, <laughs> right? Over no, this. no, no. Okay. Hang on. I mean, obviously these are issues that I pay a lot of attention to that some lawmakers have paid a lot of attention to, but do, I mean, do we think that there were enough challenges and problems across the state on Super Tuesday that this rises to the level of scrutiny and or attention that it hasn't received before? I mean, I think the it, just the problems and how widespread and kind of in air, every area of the process, right, whether it was the county level, the secretary of state's level and things like that, I think raised very valid questions that you, you raised in a story this morning about just kind of this was an election where turnout was probably about half of what it's going yeah. to be in November. Probably less than half less if, than if half, yeah. Evan has his way in terms of what turnout looks like in November. But I, I, I think, but I think go, keep going. I think you're right about that. But also there's going to be people uh, likely on both sides who are going to be casting doubt on the fairness of the electoral process. And, um, you know, we've seen that a lot lately anyways. And if we're in a situation where, you know, um, the statewide results are not accurate or not trustworthy, you know, more than, uh, you know, almost 24 hours after the polls closed, um, that's going to be a big problem. Um, you know, and then there's also the situation where if there are people from vulnerable communities that um, are having to wait seven hours to vote, that's going to be a big problem. And this is an election where you want people to trust the system. And if things go the way they did this month, there's going to be a lot of people who aren't trusting the system. Yeah, I mean, I think the the point of it, the way elections work in Texas, it's so decentralized, right? Like, sure, you have lawmakers setting policies to some extent, but there's enough room in those policies and regulations that locals basically get to adjust to the population that they are serving. There are good things that come from that, right? You think that there's some flexibility, at least when you decide things like polling locations and machines, but there also leaves enough room for error, like what we saw on Tuesday, that we, that, you know, that's just insufficient resources across the board. And, you know, I think there's an extent to which we should sort of think more soberly about Tuesday because it was a primary election, right? There are different things that come with a primary that we don't 
deal with in November. Simply the fact that like you're not going to have voters separated by party. They're all going to stand in the same line. They're all going to be able to use the same machines. Like there are functions of the primary that played a role in this. But I think the idea of you know, this was an election in which county officials had their first shot at testing out a lot of new voting systems with a big turnout. And the lesson was that there's a lot of adjustments that need to be made and they need to be made very, very soon. And otherwise, I mean, November is going to be an even hotter mess. And, you know, and more seriously, people will be disenfranchised. But But you will acknowledge that despite the fact that yeah, we did things differently this time and the primaries differ from a general election and, you know, there's all these things that you can explain away. Democratic election administrators in urban counties fucked up, period. Yeah, I mean, I'm not... Say it, we'll say it loud and say it proud. <laughs> you know, we'll, criti- we'll criticize the state for being part of voter suppression and when the state does that, we should call that out. But when Democratic counties fuck up, we should call that out. They fucked up. The biggest counties fucked up biggest of all. Yeah, and just just to get technical, like there are counties... Fucked up is a technical term, Alexa. (laughs) I don't know if you got the memo. (laughs) Listen, I don't disagree. I'm just going to say there are counties like Harris County that are run by... Elections are run by elected officials. It's a a partisan county clerk. In the case of Harris County, it's a Democrat. But there are also counties that are run by election administrators who are appointed. Obviously, they're appointed by the governing boards of counties, which are the county commissioner's court. And we are talking about blue counties, and at least in where we saw some of the biggest issues. I mean, I think without a doubt the complicating nature i mean i think politics shouldn't play a role in elections right you're talking about getting people in and out able to sort of exercise one of their most fundamental rights but yeah i mean i think you can't look at tuesday and look at where we saw some of the worst problems and not acknowledge that these are counties that are run by democrats who in recent years in particular have sort of really gone after republicans for what they have done in terms of voting regulations and they were the ones that mess things up on Tuesday in major, major ways, for sure. Okay, well, before we get to our next topic, we've got two more sponsors to go to. This week's TribCast is sponsored by Texas State Technical College is the solution to the skills gap in Texas. Find out more at tstc.edu. And the 35th Annual Texas Storytellers Festival, Tejas Live with 35. March 12th through the 15th at the Civic Center in Denton, Texas. More info at TejasStorytelling.com. All right. Well, let's end with something that matters a little bit less to most people, unless most people are Evan Smith, who is checking his phone right now, checking his watch right now. Um, you thought because I left my phone in the office that yeah, you, I, I was you hopeful that you would be present this entire time. Technology um, says hold my beer. <laughs> we heard this week from outgoing House Speaker Dennis Bonin in what were maybe his most extensive comments on the secret recording that brought him down. Cassie, you listened to this radio interview. What's your sort of biggest takeaway at this point? I mean, I have a lot of questions, but give me your oh, biggest yeah. takeaway uh, first. All right, I'll try to I'll try to keep it brief. Uh, yes, yeah, so it was Bonin's first interview since announcing his retirement in October after a political fallout uh, kind of led to his uh, downfall. Um, you know, it followed after Bonin kind of wrote a letter to the editor uh, of sorts to his local newspaper in response. A letter to the editor. I love that. Maybe it was love an op-ed. Maybe it was, but it was something. It was kinda, yeah. It was 
anyway, um, and he was basically taking issue with the way that uh, the uh, political drama that we're all referring to had, had played out and, you know, taking issue with it, you know, saying that, uh, you know, he, he still stands by his constituents and House District 25 and whatnot. Um, so during the interview, he gets on with Lubbock radio show host uh, Chad Hasty. He starts apologizing profusely, saying that he screwed up during his meeting, uh, during his June 2019 meeting with Dustin Burroughs and uh, Michael Quinn Sullivan of Empower Texans. Uh, he said that his biggest apology actually went to Dustin Burroughs, uh, you know, skimming over the fact that a, a bunch of House members and other people, uh, you know, were also uh, indirectly or directly affected by this. Um, but then, you know, interest, interestingly, he also, uh, you know, was arguing during the interview that he did next to nothing wrong uh, throughout all of this and that maybe if he you know, did make a mistake. It was that he, uh, you know, didn't remind Michael Quinn Sullivan of, you know, um, the fact that if his group Empower Texans remain politically active, that they couldn't actually end up getting press credentials, which is, you know, a little detail of this entire uh, months-long saga. So um, that's pretty much where we landed. I think, you know, it's a pretty fair question to be asking, like, why now? Uh, yeah, like, what? what is even the point? Of, I mean, it's... He's about to, what, he's got like half a year, le- a little bit more than half a year left in office. What is the point of doing this at this point? I, good question. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, there's some suggestion out there that he wanted to wait until after the primary. Uh, you know, the, the race to replace him is was pretty crowded <clears throat> and it's going to a runoff. And there was some talk of, you know, his, prefer- his preferred successor not making the runoff. Um, but really like no clarity in terms of why now after eight months when this, uh, you know, scandal fallout for surface where we're hearing from him in public remarks like this. And, and um, in the op-ed that he wrote, um, I, I seem to remember there him taking issue with a particular line in a story from his local newspaper. Which yeah, the characterization, he, right? He, yeah, he didn't even specify what it was, but seemed to be implying that the press had been kind of bamboozled into thinking that he'd done all these terrible things when he actually hadn't, uh, which I kind of, I pulled up our headline from December 20th, 2019 um, to suggest maybe it's not just the press that does this. Um, this is a Cassie Pollock story. Texas House Committee adopts report saying Dennis Bonin likely violated law in meeting with hardline activists. That was a committee that he appointed the members to, um, finding that he likely violated the law. So the idea that the media or anyone else is somehow unfairly characterizing this meeting as where he, where he actually did nothing wrong uh, is just blatantly inaccurate. So when the op-ed came out, I read it, and I thought, what did the facts, which is the paper of Missouri right. County, say that prompted this? So I went back to their website, could not find the story. So I direct messaged the editor of the paper <laughs> on Twitter, and I said, what is it that you all said that got Bonin so upset? And so she sent me the article, and what the article said was completely innocuous. And the facts in the article were not in dispute that there was a discussion of press credentials and there was a discussion of 10 Republican members who Michael Sullivan's group might uh, assist in returning to the private sector. That's my phrase, right? And that there was a linkage made, suggested between those two. Like, we all heard the tape. Does he think we didn't hear the tape? Right, I mean, like, that that's the part that is confusing. Even the, like, you know, doing next to nothing wrong because, I mean, there was this whole back and forth about 
him saying one thing to some people and then saying another thing and not acknowledging some of the things that were being yeah, raised no. even before we got the recording. Like, was that not what led to some of the frayed relationships and tensions that ultimately brought him down? Absolutely. I think there's still probably a good chunk of people out there, uh, you know, in and out of the Capitol who think that if Bonin and his his office had handled this differently, that he would have survived it. If he had copped to it end. immediately, said, yeah, I said some things I shouldn't have said. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you right. know, all throughout the summer as this Apologized. was playing out, we were talking with House members, talking with offices, and we reported at the time that, you know, I think at one point we even republished a voicemail that the speaker had left on a House member's phone, uh, you know, hours after this these allegations surfaced, just, you know, outright denying everything. And that continued on for weeks and months. Um, so that's kind of, I think, you know, what's still continues to leave a bad taste in a lot of members' mouths. Yeah. Um, I love a good reporting by voicemail well, kind one, of story. One of, <laughs> those, are, those are the best stories. <laughs> one of two things remains true all these months later. Either he is willfully ignorant of what he did, mm. right? He's like refusing, or he's just outright lying, thinking that we're not going to go back and 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 check the facts on this. I mean, it, it, there's no, I don't understand it. There's such a gulf between his version of it and what's there on the tape in his yeah. words. No one's alleged that the tape was doctored. No one's, I mean, it, it's it's right there. Um, another interesting thing that came of the interview yesterday was, I think it was the first time that we had the speaker go on record and, and say that, uh, you know, the speaker alleges that Michael Quinn Sullivan requested the meeting. You know, Sullivan says that's not true, that the speaker wanted it. Uh, you know, so Bonin was definitely continuing to argue that Sullivan requested it. But he also mentioned, I think, twice during the 30-minute interview yesterday that, you know, his purpose for the meeting was trying to keep Empire Texans, you know, to hold off fire and whatnot. And he said that, you know, that stated goal of the meeting kept coming to him, to the speaker at the request of, quote-unquote, some gentleman, right? And so there were just obviously a lot of rumors floating around as this was playing out. Nothing that we were ever able to confirm just about there being maybe a third-party interference mm. here, just in terms of convincing <laughs> the speaker. Uh, Evan's, like, shaking over there, <laughs> just buzzing. Well, the fact that it's a gentleman <laughs> narrows it down pretty far, <laughs> right? I can think of a lot of people who don't qualify. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to, to the extent that this is, you know, palace intrigue at this point, is is there anything of, that we should take of this or of the reaction of some of the Republicans still at the Capitol that at this point even matters moving forward? Probably. Am I going to get in trouble for asking <laughs> that way? I mean... I don't know. I, I think that there's probably like two things just if you wanted to spin this forward. The first one being how silent the current speaker's race to replace Bonin is, has been so far. And that's just, I think, coming as everybody wanting to, you know, basically hold their line and stay out of, you know, any sort of spotlight until it's, you know, time to, to roll maybe after the, the general elections. And then second to that, is anything ever going to come? Uh, are, are House members ever going to do anything to try to... Uh, you know, I don't know, penalize may be a right word, Dustin Burroughs. He's, you know, running for re-election. He's all but certainly going to be back. And, you know, he was part of this uh, three-person meeting in June. Um, you know, we've reported in the blast that, you know, it takes one House member to ask the House Republican caucus to look into the fact that Dustin Burroughs uh, allegedly violated caucus bylaws, right? That could lead to, you know, a number of things, a fine, kicking him out of the caucus, Will anything like that ever actually uh, materialize during the interim? 
The best part of it, I thought, was when Bonin acknowledged that he had not spoken to all 10 of the people on the list. And I'm like, <laughs> who, who, has, who he not has he to? not talked to? But didn't he say that some people hadn't returned his calls? Or some people like are, quote unquote, unwilling to talk. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, you know, I was checking in with people yesterday. They just still haven't, you know, gotten a call from him or had anybody from his office. So you talked to, to a, a one of the 10 of the X-Men? Um, you know, I talked to X-Men and then I also talked to people who were also mentioned <coughs> on the recording. Uh, does it feel like the house has moved on? Like, I mean, why, you know, why, why, I, why do you need to return the... Well, Cassie's point about the there speakers. not being an active speakers race is maybe one way in which it sort of hasn't yet, right? Yeah, I think that there are still some very real hurt feelings. I think a lot of people are pointing to the fact that the Republican, that the House Republican vehicle for, like, raising money and, like, supporting incumbents seems to be really splintered. Um, you know, you saw a lot of members... Uh, give to this new Charlie Guerin, Carl Rove uh, political action committee. You saw others give to, you know, the speaker's political action committee. You saw, like, some crossover. And I think a lot of that, um, or not the speakers, I'm sorry, the House Republican Caucus pack, um, a lot of that is just kind of based on, you know, alliances and who's with who in the downfall and in the aftermath of all of this. Imagine a world in which that meeting had never taken place and the speaker came out of the session as strong as he appeared to come out of it after passing the public education bill and everything else that happened and the things that didn't happen, and he's heralded as having the most successful first term as speaker of maybe any speaker ever, imagine how powerful Bonin would have been as an asset and an ally to Republicans and to the party in this election cycle. He is not. So if you want to know one thing where there hasn't been a moving on of sorts, it's the absence of Bonin as a material force and factor in this election cycle which he would have been. The efforts on the part of Republicans may still prevail. I still think they probably will prevail to retain control of the House. But it would have been so much easier if you had Bonin as that Bonin as opposed to Bonin as this sponsor, right, in that job. All right. Well, we have got to move on from this trip cast because we are out of time. Probably um, five coronavirus <laughs> confirmations while we've I don't, been I here. don't even want to know. Yeah, what's over under? As yeah. always, thanks to Spoon for our theme music and to the LBJ Women's Campaign School, Waters and Kraus, Texas State Technical College, and the Tejas Storytelling Festival, our sponsors this week. On behalf of Edgar, Matthew, Evan, and Cassie, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Regina, this is Alexa. Thanks for listening. You